Okay, so shall we get into this? Sounds good. Dan, I'm glad you're back with us today. Um, last week we missed you, but we enjoyed Brother Kevin. He he came on board and we did a discussion on the purpose of the curse and the purpose, the redemptive purpose of the curse and work. And now we're just pendulum, swinging the pendulum all the way to another sphere. Well, I'm sorry I missed it. I was down sick, so I would have probably appreciated a message on the purpose of the curse. So. <laughs> okay. And, you know, just to kind of tease out to people where we're hoping to go. We're probably in the next couple weeks, maybe um, maybe the next couple weeks, we're going to reset the, the discussion, the podcast, and we're going to start tracking along very much of the history of ideas. We're going to start with some of the biggest themes in the Garden of Eden, the Tower of Babel, the fall of man, Noah's Ark and salvation. We're going to work through historically the great shifts in human thought and ideas, you know, the ideas that have really shaped the world in which we live. And so we're kind of preparing that on the side and um, hopefully going to have that, that reset ready. But if you're interested in that, stay tuned. And in the next couple of weeks or so, Lord willing, we're going to make that pivot. Uh, but for now, we're just going to keep taking topics that come to us. And this topic is something that a brother raised, um, a brother visiting from out of town raised with me. And I thought, you know what? This is something we really should discuss for the benefit of the body of Christ um, and its expression here locally and, and those that are in fellowship with us around the world, as well as any other believers and Christians who are interested in this topic. And I guess the question is, um, there's a couple layers to it, but the question is, does a believer commit to a church or do they just commit to Christ? And somebody says, well, what do you mean commit? I think that I think that we have to acknowledge that scripture um, entails a level of commitment, right? We would point to 1 Peter 3.21 when he says that baptism is the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And that's how the NIV renders it. The New King James says it's the answer. But in its early etymology, even that meant to give a solemn commitment as an answer. Um, so it seems hard to get around the fact that there is a commitment made. We think of Paul saying to Timothy, Paul speaks to Timothy about the confession that Timothy made in the sight of many witnesses, and that this was this was a solemn confession that was given parallel to Christ's commitment before Pontius Pilate. Um, so, Hebrews speaks about holding fast to your confession of faith. So, it, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of references that, that this is not just something Jesus did for us that we're accepting or acknowledging, but that we are uh, required to, in turn, commit. We have an obligation in, in return. If he loved us like this, then how ought we to live? And it seems like from Colossians 2.10, Paul is, is unavoidably making baptism parallel for the new covenant as circumcision was for the old. And we know that circumcision was absolutely <clears throat> right of passage into the covenant. If you didn't do that, you weren't in the covenant. If you rejected it, you were cut off from the people. And so when, when Paul makes baptism for the new covenant, what circumcision was for, for the old, he's, he's saying that this is how we're entering the covenant. And we harmonize all of this, the pledge of a good conscience, the confession before many witnesses, 
uh, and the the idea of it being parallel to circumcision to say that this commitment happens about the very terminology of covenant. A lot of people skip right past the fact that this is the new covenant and act as if in the Old Testament they had covenants, in the New Testament they don't. But obviously there is a new covenant, and and is the is the tenor of that covenant is the are the are the particulars of that covenant and and of the the change that Jesus came to bring. Do we see that as a kind of lowering of the standards and loosening up of everything, um, or do we see that as a higher bar? that God is setting for the level of relationship that he desires to have with his people. Amen. And that's so, a debate in itself, I guess. But. So I guess kind of the way that the approach that I would like to take, maybe it's a little bit broad and then start narrowing down and get a little bit more specific. But the first thing I would, I would say is that the apostles and the first church they saw themselves as belonging to the same covenant and the same story and the same process that began with Abraham. They saw themselves as heirs of the Abrahamic promises. And there's no universe where they would have, where anyone would have seen the salvation of Israel as a nation, as an individualistic thing. Mm -hmm. They saw it in corporate terms. And, and therefore, the, the church, if the church is spiritual Israel, if the church is present-day Israel, we can't impose on the church, on, on soteriology, the individualism, the independence of 21st century Westernism. <laughs> We've got to look at it through the lens of that the apostles would have been looking at it. And... If you look at, at Paul's quotes from throughout Romans of Isaiah, I think it's the New Testament writers saw the church as Zion, as the fulfillment of Zion. And the promises in Isaiah that were given to Zion, they belonged to, were inherited by the church. And if we look at Isaiah 62, the, the messianic prophecy there, um, the Lord says through Isaiah that he's speaking to Zion and he says, you will no longer be called desolate and forsaken, but you will be called the delight of the Lord and married. He's talking to Zion. And this is really the introduction of the idea that God is going to espouse his people as his bride. Mm -hmm. and, and he says, uh, go ahead. And, and you already implied this, but there, for those who would differentiate out and try to say that, well, Zion is really just talking about the Jews. In the book of Hebrews, we're, we're told in the 12th chapter that Zion is one and the same as the church of God that was purchased with his blood. So it, I'm just saying there's explicit reference to understanding the church as a whole as being a parallel to Zion in the Old Testament. So the church is Zion. He says that you quoted it in Hebrews 12. You have come to, to Mount Zion to the church of the living God. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so it says here in Isaiah 62, the prophet then says, your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. Then your God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And so you have this, this, you have this kind of three-way relationship. You've got 
Zion as the church, and she is becoming the bride of the Most High. And then you have the children of Zion committing themselves in a marriage-like commitment to Zion. Mm -hmm. And so to us, it seems unavoidable that salvation is put forth as a relationship of oneness between God and a corporate people, an entity called Zion or called the church. And I think that's really what Paul is saying in Ephesians. That's the language Paul is using in Ephesians 5. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. I mean, when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her and present her to himself as a bride without spot or wrinkle. He's not saying that, that Christ has done something for a whole collection of individuals. He's saying Christ has married his people. God is the bridegroom of this corporate bride that was once called Zion, is now called Jerusalem from above, the new Jerusalem, the church, the mother of us all. And so that church is in this covenant relationship of salvation with God. And by the same token, we are supposed to be then committing ourselves to this entity that is in that is one, that is at one with God. Amen? Yes, sir. So um, maybe there's other scriptures. Maybe we should look at some other scriptures that just show how they saw um, the church as Israel. Can I pull, Can I read one? Yeah, you, you probably have it in your notes here, but I, I was just thinking of of uh, Ephesians 2 and his his point there is where is that the Gentiles are being brought near yes. uh, having been far away but the language that he uses there uh, this is Ephesians 2 11 therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I just think it's an, it's an obvious place where he's, he's not referring to it just in terms of you used to be far from Christ, now you can be close to Christ, you and Jesus can do your thing. Right. He says, you weren't part of the commonwealth. Right. You weren't part of the covenant of right. promise that was given to the Jewish people, but now the way has been made for you too to join this. He, he, there is nothing here that indicates an abolishing of this commonwealth or this covenant of promise. This is viewed as, as life and salvation that they are being now grafted into. And there, then, of course, he goes on down saying, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having built on the foundation, etc. So the whole thing is in corporate terms, with all the language referencing uh, the the frames of the Commonwealth of Israel. And so what Paul is saying is that the church is the Israel nation. Mm -hmm. The church is the Messianic nation. It is the new Commonwealth. Yeah. And you've got to become part of that in order to become heir of the promises made to Abraham. He calls the church the Israel of God Amen. in the last chapter of Galatians. Amen. I look at Galatians 3 here, 3, 7 through 9. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, he doesn't just say followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. He says sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
so that those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul spends much effort to show us that Jesus was the heir of Abraham to whom the promise of salvation was given. And he says that this is because Abraham was uh, because Isaac was born of promise, and Jesus also was born of the Spirit. Isaac was the one to whom the promise was, was going to attach. And, and that, that spiritual birth, remember he says, I will return. At this time, mm-hmm. I will return, and Sarah will have a son. So the visitation of the Most High was the antecedent for this promise of salvation. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that that was only a type of Jesus. Then, of course, in the, in the last verses of Galatians, he tells the church that you are Abraham's seed, singular, if you put on Christ. I look at Galatians 4.25, and Paul says, Now Hagar, in his, in his whole dialogue, Hagar is the one who was born, uh, Hagar is the one who gave birth to the child of yeah. the flesh. And he says, now, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to present the present city of Jerusalem. So he's saying, in fact, Jerusalem as a fleshly entity, as a, as a non-spiritual community, it has become as Ishmael. Mm-hmm. But he says, because she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course, you've already quoted Galatians 6.16, where he says, peace and mercy to all who follow this, this rule, to the Israel of God. So this is this is important because you could not in, in the in the Old Testament, if you broke the covenant, what they said is he shall be put out from his people. Mm-hmm. It was his people, it was this idea of corporate election that even gave you the hope of salvation. And if you were going to be one with that people, you were going to enjoy this corporate election. And if you weren't, you were going to be put out from this people, alienated from the covenants of promise. I, I think it's remarkable the the imagery that's actually being used in the the circumcision terminology in the old covenant, where it says there that if anyone is not circumcised, he shall be cut off from from his people or from my people, and um, the the terminology they use for circumcision, of course, is that it is a cutting off. They would speak of cutting the covenant, and there's various symbolisms for cutting the covenant, circumcision being one of them. So it's like you had this choice. You would either make the symbolic commitment to let your flesh be cut away from you in order to be joined to the people of God. And if you wouldn't do that, if you wouldn't make that commitment to die to your flesh and let that be cut off from you, then you would be cut off from the commonwealth, from the corporate uh, nation of Israel. So uh, the point being that if that if that imagery st- still applies, and we would say that it does, uh, that again we're talking about a corporate entity that we're being uh, making that covenant with, and not just me and Jesus. Yeah, I was thinking about Peter in First uh, Peter two. He says, "You are a chose." He's speaking to the church, mm-hmm. and he says, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation." a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is using the exact language that was once ascribed to Israel, and he's saying the same thing now applies to the church. Mm -hmm. And it's not based on genetics. It's based on whether we have been born again of the Spirit and received grace. He's quoting from Exodus 19.6 when the Lord says to the children of Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So it's important that the Apostle Paul, all of them, James and Acts 15, they all saw the church as the fulfillment and continuation of the Israel story, the Israel promises, the Israel salvation. So I don't know if I'm jumping ahead with this, but I think that there are a lot of believers who would say, <clears throat> I understand that I am joining the church, um, uh, but the church is, you know, whichever one I choose to join. The church is a very broad organization, um, and it consists of all types of congregations all around the world. And so um, they may see their commitment to be to the church, but it's to the universal church. It's to the mystical body of, the Christ, of Christ. That's the terminology that's often used. Uh, meaning that you can't see it, you don't, you don't, you you can't really comprehend its fullness. It's kind of like this web over the whole earth, and you know most of the people you have no idea who they are, but it just feels good to know you belong. Huh. Okay, let me let me chime in here. For okay, okay. <laughs> so one of the things this came up in this discussion I was having, and one of the things that I thought it was relevant to point out is that in the days of the apostles there were not a thousand or more different denominations. There was just one body. So even, even the, the assumptions that, that would have attached to their reference to the church would have been much more consolidated than the assumptions that we use when we're talking about, you know, how many different denominations, thousands of different denominations. And, you know, are we, are we saying that they're all is equally valid? Are we denying that there is a universal body of Christ? I wouldn't deny that, but some of those things are, are, are seem important to point out. Yeah, uh, well, I think the Western American model emphasizes autonomy and independence. I'm talking about across the board. Yeah. And I, I believe that that model is by and large co-opted by the church uh, because it's popular, because it appeals to the flesh, that you can be your own thing. And that, and so we co-opt that with Christian terminology like freedom in Christ and things like that. And what that really means is you can do whatever you want, put a Jesus sticker on it, and, and you're good. And you're part of the church just because you say you believe in Jesus. That makes you a part of the church. And so that's your commitment, kind of. And the whole thing loses any real application to your life. And so people, they place much less emphasis often on what church they're part of than they do on what their job is. You know, so I've, you know, I've been, maybe I'm a, an upstanding uh, Baptist and I, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and so I found a church there because that's where I went to college or whatever, but, but now my job is transferring me to San Antonio. That's not a problem at all. We'll follow the money, and I'm sure we'll find a good church down there, and it's all the same to God, and we're just trying to be responsible and provide for the family. And so those priorities, they, they seem to be rather easily... Uh, Church hopping, you might might call it, and I think people are conscious that we don't we we have a little different model here, yes. and and sometimes that gets uh, tweaked yeah. and twisted, 
into um, an assumption. They see that we take our, our relationships very seriously. We take discipleship very seriously. Uh, that we're very personally connected to each other. That we're, There's a lot of accountability and so forth. Um, and we talk about the church and the need for commitment and all that. And then they make a leap from there and say, well, they must believe they're the only church. And, and if you if you leave their church, you're damned to hell forever. If you don't join their church, you're at best a wandering ignoramus, and you haven't seen the light yet, because they're the only ones that are actually saved and going to heaven. There's this huge. In my mind, yeah. it's a huge leap, but I, I can I can see the logic. I can see how people get to that. Um, I'm bringing it up because it's something that, that bothers me. <laughs> that, that, that it seems like it's a, an assumption that people make about us. So I'm, you're going to untangle that for us now. <laughs> All I have to do is do this. <laughs> okay. You're going to untangle that. Well, I don't know about that. You know, I, I was thinking about our baptismal commitment um, and the, the ceremony that we often read when baptizing a new member. And we say in there, we want to first impress upon the candidate that the pledge you make today is not made to the ministers of this church nor to the church itself. The pledge you make is to God with the spirit, the water, the blood of Jesus and all believers present serving as witnesses. Mm -hmm. That's almost a verbatim quote, if not. And so, but then we, we carry on and we say the content of this vow to God must necessarily be walked out in an abiding commitment to the body of Christ over which he reigns his head. And so that's that's almost sounds like a contradiction to, to someone who's not listening carefully. I think it's a nuanced, precise delineation of what is really going on. But it's like we, we have got to make a pledge to Jesus, understanding that it is through Jesus's bride that we live in unity with him. And so it is not possible to make him a polygamist and say, I have this individual thing going with him while he is a spouse to one church, Mm -hmm. the bride of Christ. It is through the bride of Zion. It is said, your sons will commit themselves to you and your God will, Will join your will rejoice over you as a bridegroom over his bride. So, so it's like when I when I'm baptized, am I committing to Dan? You were baptized before me. You were part of this church before me. Am I committing to you? Yes, but my commitment to you is based on and because of our commitment to Christ. Mm-hmm. I am not committing to you apart from Christ because we are both submitting to Christ, then I am necessarily committed to you. But if you were to leave God, my commitment does not follow you. Or if I were to, was to leave God, your commitment would not follow me. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, we're not committing to a place or to a people. We are committing to God. But then it becomes more complicated when you say, is the body of Christ supposed to be a a gathering of stones or a stack of stones, or is it supposed to be a fitly framed body or a, a, a house built of lively stones? If all we're supposed to have as Christians is proximity, whether doctrinal proximity or, or positional doc, uh, relational proximity, 
then achieving the body of Christ is no big deal. But if it's supposed to be a living, breathing organism upon the earth, then it has to be configured according to some order. And if it has to be configured according to an order, then who gets to decide? If I am a member of the body as a, as a pinky, do I choose where I belong? And if I don't, who makes that choice? And so in a sense, we are committing to Christ. That's the, the presiding commitment. But we are also saying that God is revealing to us where we belong in this big universal body. And that there is a universal belonging, but there is a local attachment and belonging as well. At the risk of oversimplifying through an imperfect analogy, you know, uh, and this will sound ridiculous, but it might get the point across. If a child is being raised in a family, we wouldn't say that just because we believe in the universal concept of family, or just because we're all descendants of Noah, that it would be fine for that child to up and leave his parents and his siblings and be transplanted into another family. That it would be just as good. That's you know, actually good. Yeah. We wouldn't say that because why? Well, we would say, well, it wouldn't be natural, for one. Uh, there we, we can see that there are givens. Yeah. There is something that's designed by God that has to do with who your parents are. Right. Uh, and that there is something that is then a given that derives from that. And I think yes. we could point to some scriptures on that, yes. that, that idea. Yes. Uh, but we would also say, this has been the context of his life. This has been where he has developed the type of closeness and connections and trust and so forth that allow for a certain type of atmosphere and, and trust for whether that be for correction or guidance or inspiration or whatever. Right. And to just pop him out of it and pop him into another family and say, well, they have a good family too. They're nice. They even believe the same things yeah. is to ignore the possibilities that emerge with long term. Yeah relationship that I think God designed people to be nurtured in. Right. So if that makes sense. A hundred percent. And, and I, I think that, you know, I look at, uh, at, at the language that Paul uses and Paul and the apostle John, they both repeatedly refer to the church at this place. Mm -hmm. They don't say, they don't refer to the church as just one big amorphous thing and this is just where you're attached or where you happen to be living. They're, they're, they say, um, you know, John, of course, says, how can you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brothers whom you have seen? Mm -hmm. So he's saying that the love of God and the love of the brothers has to be with those believers you are in immediate relationship with, that you see and, and live with. But then Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians, he says, to the church of God at Corinth, he does the same thing to the Thessalonians, to the church of God that is at Thessalonica. So, um, and in Philemon 1, 2, he does the same thing. Of course, in Revelations, he says, to write to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, to the angel of the church of this and the church mm -hmm. of that. So we're not saying, there's a sense in which we're not saying that there are many, many, many different churches, but in the sense that that church becomes a representative for you of the body of Christ, it is the body of Christ at Corinth. It is the body of Christ at Thessalonica. And, and, and you can't say, I love the church whom I can't, have not seen, if you do not love and belong to and commit to the church whom you can see. Mm -hmm. And I think John gives the, 
the precedent for that. Yeah. So enter the concept of the local body. Yes. And many people would acknowledge that concept that there are locally, most people would. They would say, well, there's, yeah, there's the church down the block here, and then there's the church down in, up in Dallas, and there's another church over here. And um, so they have a concept of a local body, but it's still like, well, that's what makes it so beautiful and so flexible that um, you or I can hop up and, and move wherever we like, and it's all still the same. It's all still the body of Christ. Once again, it comes back to the question of, does God have a particular plan? Yes. You know, does he have a particular plan for my life, right. for your life? Right. Uh, and and this, this goes into the area of marriage and things like that, too. Yeah. You know, is, is, marriage, is marriage something that God has a particular plan for? Yeah. Or is it just kind of an institution that he threw out there and he expects us to just do what we want and he'll bless it? Yeah. You know, many people follow that pattern and God is long-suffering with all of us uh, over many things. He has given us the freedom to do it. That's obvious. Yeah. But is that for our good or does he actually have a plan in mind uh, that would involve particular people in particular places? And yeah. Of course, passages like Acts 17 come to mind where Paul is saying, Right. God has determined the yeah. boundary lines and the times and the exact places where men should dwell so that they might seek him and find him. Amen. And I think that can that can carry over into the givens of your life. God has determined. You don't choose your parents. Right. Yeah, God has determined. And then, and then the language that we see in other places, for, uh, Corinthians and Romans, about that uh, God has composed the body just as he willed. Right. And does, does that only mean he has a general thing and people plug in wherever they want? You know, you, you can, if, if you're a, a pinky finger, you can attach over here or, or over here or whatever. It doesn't really make a difference. Or has he designed it? Right. Do people have specific giftings? Do they have specific uh, callings on their lives that are supposed to integrate in a certain fashion with other people, with right. complementary giftings, where right. the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to hop up and go over here. Right. Uh, that, that, or, or does God have a real plan for all of these things that he is hoping that we're going to seek him yeah. and we're going to find it? We're gonna, yeah. Maybe we're even groping after it. We're seeking, we're trying to find the right church. I think there are many people who are sincerely trying to find the church that feels right, yeah. that has the right beliefs, that, that accords with the truth as they understand it, and, yeah. and where, where they feel connection with the people. We're not faulting that. We're saying that's part of the process of, of feeling after God and trying to come into it. Yeah. But is it supposed to be a flighty thing, right. or does God ultimately have a resting place right. and a place where you and me are called to connect? Amen. And And I... Perhaps I've even given too much emphasis already here on geography. Right. It's not so much geography. No. But it is it is a relational geography, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. you think of, of Paul saying, you know, you have many teachers. Yeah. But you have not many fathers. I have begotten you through the gospel. Or him talking about Timothy and saying, I have nobody like him. He's a true son in the faith. He serves me. You right. know, th there are these types of connections that, that don't just up and leave your life. No. And ultimately, we're, they're all fleeting in the sense that, you know, our earthly fathers are going to depart. Right. Um, our spiritual fathers are going to depart. God may, in fact, have us to move from one geographical location to sure. another. That, that's not the point. But are we operating according to an awareness and a consciousness of not my will, but yours be done? Yeah. Is, is, am I surrendered to your design, to your plan? Yeah. Or is this all about choose the church of your choice? Yeah. And, and, and I think that 
if we if we have that awareness and that fear of God, if you will, that Lord, just as you cannot take a note from a song and put it anywhere else in the song and expect it to have the same meaning or resonance, I cannot take myself out of your will without incurring a dissonance mm-hmm. that, that will not be repaired until I repair those relationships. It's like um, if we're not in the place of God's choosing, then constantly moving increases our likelihood, perhaps, of finding that place of belonging. But there's got to be some expectation that God wants to compose me into the body. I think of that passage in Revelations where he says, he shall be a a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Mm. So finding that place of maturity is finding a place of abiding responsibility. And and some things just don't change. Timothy is not going to wake up and say, you know, Paul was my father in the Lord yesterday, but today, you know, I feel like it's this one. The fatherhood of God will be expressed through many different people in our lives, no doubt. But there are some relationships that have begotten us according to the gospel, and there's just, those are abiding apart from some kind of breach or transgression that would make that no longer possible. So just to kind of boil this cabbage down, <laughs> um, somebody comes and says, I feel like God has revealed to me that I have to be an integrated member of the body of Christ. And we all recognize that as a worldwide phenomenon. We say, praise God. And then they say, I want to be baptized here. I think Jesus, um, as has been pointed out by Brother Joel, I think Jesus in Matthew 28, 19 is tying discipleship to baptism when he says, make disciples baptizing them. Yes. So you should presumably be baptized by those who, who you feel God has called you to be discipled under. But say they come and say, I feel like I'm supposed to be discipled in the context of this body. And then, um, and you ask them, you say, well, is God joining you to this people? Has God given you that insight that he is composing you into his body right here, that this is the place? Then they come down uh, a couple years down the road and say, you know what? I love you guys, but the universal body of Christ is calling and I am going to be jumping up and moving over here. That puts us in a difficult position. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, let's say that it's not a geographic move, but let's say it is a relational move. It may be even a move out of truth, out of uh, clarity of conviction or whatever. You know, are they breaking covenant with God at that point? That's a sticky one. Mm -hmm. At the risk of further muddying the waters. Uh, I just think of an, another example that perhaps people would relate to is marriage. Mm. You know, where here we have a, it's a, I'm sure everybody, believers would agree, it's a lesser covenant than the one we make with Jesus. Um, in fact, Paul makes pretty clear in Ephesians 5 that as much as he's instructing husbands and wives, that's a shadow right. of the greater real uh, uh covenant that is the basis of all other other covenants. Yeah. And yet marriage is given as a permanent arrangement right. other than that you're parted by death or by some tragic falling away. Right. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, would it be legitimate to say my freedom in Christ um, causes me to feel like 
it's time to move on to another spouse. After all, you're not the only woman uh, in the world. You're not even the only Christian woman in the world. Right. And I know we've had some good years together and everything, but um, you know, it just seems like it might work better somewhere else now. Hopefully, we would take a little pause at that and say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Something is being lost. Something is being thrown away that, that a kind of love and relationship that can really only unfold mm. under some understanding that there is some permanence here, right. that there is a mutual commitment between ourselves. And, and it's not just about, you know, the husband saying, well, I'm connected to Jesus and you're connected to Jesus. And for a while we were together, but it, uh, we're going to do something different now. Right. We would say, well, if that was the approach, what they would then call marriage wouldn't be what, what I've come to know as marriage, yeah. where there is an understanding that we are in this for better or for worse, and richer and for poorer, yeah. and all of that, we're, we're, we're together. Yeah. And while we may make a geographical move or whatever, we're going to do it together. Right. And I, I'm not saying that that should be exactly applied between every believer in the church, sure. but to go back to your biblical language that we started with, your son shall marry you. Right. We are talking about a very intimate connection that is assumed to be permanent. Right. So at the very least, I would say it ought to be done with the utmost care and fear of God God that relationships are not born in a day. Right. And we are not going to find the depths of discipleship, uh, even of of uh, of the comfort and love that we need to sustain us through the trials of life if we are hopping uh, and, and never finding a place where we can say, I'm home. Right. Thank this you, is Jesus. my church family. Yeah. Serial membership. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, in a situation like that, um, you would be, as a minister, I would be inclined to reserve judgment and to caution the believer and to say, you know, if this is of God, then there is going to be fruit accompanying this decision. There's going to be fruit of godliness fruit of, of love, fruit of, of more of the life of the Spirit that is going to unfold in your life. And if that is the case, we will celebrate this change with you. But if that is not the case, then there's going to be fruit that this, this is a wrong seed, this is a wrong tree, and it's going to bear fruit of disunity, it's going to bear, bear fruit of sin, it's going to bear fruit of independence. Mm-hmm. Heresis, from which we get the word heretic, doesn't it literally mean of one's own choosing? Of one's own choosing. Wow, which is exactly the equation that was presented by the devil in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. So, it's there's a sense in which all modern Christians are heretics because the body of Christ for them is of one's own choosing, mm. and they are it, they are evaluating, they are deciding how and where, and I think that. I think the level of our commitment to a local church has to be commensurate with the level of revelation, love, and reality of Christ's life in that church. You know, if we are, we, we don't attach to a, a mausoleum that is, calls itself a church in the same way that we attach to a living, breathing temple that is full of life and love and fruits of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any great harm in moving from one dead place to another. But if you're moving from one place of life, of truth, and you're not just moving geographically, but you're moving out of the whole body of truth 
and body of relationships that have given you life, you better do that in the fear of God. And, and I think that we would probably, uh, ref if the sad thing is, is oftentimes when people make this decision, there are some, there is some other uh, fruit already accompanying the decision. They're rejecting some seminal truth. And Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we as a church have to bring loving discipline when someone is, is in violation of the truth, is in unrepented sin, is in a spirit of independence and rebellion. You know, Diotrephes seems to be an apostle in, in a certain region who is rejecting the other apostles. And John is excommunicating him on that basis because he will not receive the other apostles. Um, elsewhere, Paul says, if, any, if anyone does not heed the words of my instruction in this letter, take note of him and do not associate with him. So again, a measure of discipline or excommunication is coming just because they're not submitted to the truth, the good confession that Paul is, the standard that Paul is holding up in the Word. Mm -hmm. Other times where he says, uh, take note of a divisive man, warn him once and twice, and after that, do not associate with him. So then there's the example in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians rather, of the man in, in unrepented immorality. He says, put him out from your midst. He is leaven that is going to leaven the whole lump. I'm paraphrasing, but we know the passages. So we would bring discipline for, for fruits of sin of any of these kind. But in, the, in an instance of someone saying, I feel like God's calling me elsewhere, we would caution, we would appeal to them, we would ask them to search their heart and motives, and then if, if the fruits, if fruits accompanied such a decision that were fruits of righteousness, then amen. And if they did not, then we would bring discipline based on the fruits and the sin, not, not based on the shift in itself. Yeah. That's, that's probably the approach that we would take. It's, it's very rare. It's very rare in a close-knit community for someone to do this when there's not when it's not already attaching to some ugly transgression that they're not wanting to deal with. In fact, that's often the antecedent for such a break. And if it really is because somebody has seen a light in another congregation or location or and they are being drawn by greater grace greater submission to the truth and to the authority of Jesus, uh, greater love, greater power, greater anointing, then wouldn't they owe it to the rest of us yes. to not just say, see you guys, I found a better, greener pasture, but to say, guys, come and see. Amen. Come and see what I found. Th these are brothers. Maybe Amen. we can even work together. Amen. You know, and I, I'm thinking of scenarios that we've seen unfold over the years with people who have encountered our ministry uh, coming from a church background. Yes. And sometimes going through great searchings of heart about what does this mean? Yeah. You know, th th I was part of this church for a long time, or maybe I was raised there, or my parents went there, or whatever, and I've known these people for a long time, and those relational connections there are bonds there, there yeah. in a good sense. There are, uh, there is love and care for the people and so forth, and 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 so then the searching of heart comes because it feels like. But I found something that I feel I feel like is has more of the truth, yeah. is is more accurate to the word of God. Right. That the spirit of life is there that I'm not feeling in in the home place, if if you will, 
And so what do I do with this? Yeah. And it can create quite a crisis of conscience. And we've seen people walk through it. And I tell you, I have a lot of respect for people who don't just drop it willy nilly and, and run off to the next, right. you know, the next best show. Right. Um, if that's happening, we encourage people to put the brakes on yeah. easy there. Don't, don't just, don't just drop your other relationships. Yes. But at the same time, sometimes it takes a courage also to appeal to those around you and, yes. and share with them the light, the truth that you're seeing. And when you start getting that pushback, which unfortunately often happens, right. um, to know when it's time yeah. to say, though none go with me, still I will follow. Amen. And I may have to make a shift. I'm not going to do it in a spirit of, of rebellion. I'm not yes. going to do it in a spirit of uh, a lack of care for other people. I'm going to plead with them. Yes. I'm going to reach for them. I'm going to do what I can. Yes. But I'm not either going to stay stuck right. in a place where no one bears witness to the truths God is showing me, right. you know, and, and that it's all just going to be for the sake of tradition or something. Right. Uh, any more than you could do that with your natural family. No. You, you, and you can't stay attached yeah. to something that God is not blessing. Yeah. And that's really where the commitment to Christ supersedes Amen. all other commitment. Amen. And that's even in our, in our baptismal pledge, we ask that the candidates commit to that, even if they're the only one to do it, that they even have a, a requirement to mm -hmm. leave this congregation if it's not walking in the light, if it's not persisting in the way of, of the life of the Spirit. I think of, of, of that off-quoted scripture where the apostles say to the Sanhedrin, uh, whether it is better to, to serve God or man, you be the judge. You know, but he says, we would rather obey God than man. And mm -hmm. Paul says, beloved, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. And that should be our approach. We should try to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. But if that's going to curtail our obedience to the Lord Jesus, then no form, whether of a church fellowship or of a family, should ever come between us and God, and that, that would become idolatry. Amen. And that's where we not only have the allowance to separate, we have the, the difficult requirement to separate, whether from here or anywhere else, where we feel like we are suppressing our conscience in preference for man. It's a big topic. It is. <laughs> we've, we've danced around some of it without really getting into it, but... I don't know how much time we can take in one session. Yeah. Well, maybe it's at least enough to spark some questions and uh, get us down the road of, of, of expanding the discussion and understanding each other and it more and more. Mm -hmm.